0: All right, well, this is lesson nine, and wow, lesson nine, we are, I would say we are well past rounding the corner of Genesis, and we'll be reviewing, as you know, Genesis 31 through 34 for this talk, and uh, one quick reminder on the Hebrew calendar, this Wednesday, oh, this is Wednesday, (laughs) I've made this announcement a couple of times, Uh, tonight, it's sundown, which has just happened, uh, began Purim. And uh, the Jewish tradition is to read the book of uh, Esther. It's a short book, and I'd encourage you to read that. And the Purim ends tomorrow night, so it's a, a perfect time to revisit Esther and read through that and be on the kind of that God's calendar, in a sense, the Hebrew calendar. As we begin tonight, you can open up your notes and feel free to jot down. Um, I will have time at the end, Lord willing, for q and R. I'd love for you to stay for that if you've got questions that don't get answered in the talk, or if it provokes even more, you know how I am, I love that, so please um, feel free to stay and enjoy that time, and if you have to go, of course, you can scoot on out, or you can leave now, sure, bye Ruth. (laughs) 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 I'm awful, of all people, really pick on Ruth, that's mean. Um, I want you to think about a few questions before we begin, just have these hovering over your mind um, as we begin, jot them down if you want, or just kind of let them hover, like I said, over you. Um, What's one thing you want from God? One thing you want from God. One thing you want from God. Um, Another question for you. Are you open to what it will take for him to give that to you? Are you open to what it would take for him to give that to you? And along those lines, are you open to the possibility that what you want isn't his will for you? Or his timing is different, maybe by a long shot, <laughs> than what you imagine it would be? So just keeping those questions in mind as we move through these, these chapters here. So let's just kind of get a running start on our passage for tonight, um, where we've been in Genesis chapter 30. We'll kind of pick up there. Remember that Jacob had prepared to leave his country empty handed, unlike his brother Isaac, who had who had a servant, as we talked about, a type of Holy Spirit, who headed out with a lot of gifts and was ready to find a wife. Jacob left with a staff. He talks about that when he talks to God later. He left, leaves with a staff in his hand. He didn't even have a pillow. He slept on a rock, if you remember. And uh, so he's ready to go back to his homeland, and God has commanded him to do that. And... Um, Laban realizes that losing Jacob is going to be bad for him, and um, he puts up a fuss about it, but um, Jacob's willing to kind of sneak out. They enter into this kind of um, unequal partnership. He ends up working for him for all those years. Laban keeps on changing his wages, and then in Genesis 31, it gets really clear that Jacob realizes that it's God that's blessed him and that God was the reason why he had prospered. And we started to see a shift in Jacob's, and I've been using this phrase with you, his maturity and mindset, or mindset and maturity. And um, we see a a shift, and don't we find ourselves as we read through these accounts, moving ourselves in a little bit and thinking about how that reflects on us, and how would we behave, and how have I behaved, and how am I like the best part of Jacob, or the worst in that sense. So in Genesis 30, God's preparing Jacob to trust him and to acknowledge him alone. And so the question hovering over us for that is, does that happen? Does that actually end up happening? And Genesis 31 begins to give us the answer to that. And I kinda go back and forth between the NET and the ESV, just like I did in the study. Um, So Jacob, verse one there, hears that Laban's sons were complaining. And what's interesting about that added insight to the passage Because remember, Moses writing this did not have to include that detail. He could just said, you know, Laban's sons were complaining. But he adds the insight, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were complaining. Who else are we familiar with in this account, all the way through Genesis, that acts upon what they heard, right? Well, Sarah does. Sarah overhears Ishmael's tormenting of Isaac, Sarah overhears the angel engaging with Abraham, Abram at the time. Uh, Rebecca overhears that Isa wants to kill him, kill Jacob. So we have this repeated theme. And so in in not just teaching you, but also teaching you to be good students of the word, I want you to start thinking along the lines of, where have I heard this before? And watch for those patterns. Last time I asked you to watch for the idea of types in the Bible we learned about Eliezer being a type and Isaac being a type. This time I want you to think about, I feel like I've heard this before. This is a repeated motif in the scripture and it's there intentionally. I love God's, God's a teacher at heart. You know, he wants us to learn. Good teachers want their students to learn so they write in ways that they will. So he says, as that verse continues, Jacob has taken everything. That belonged to our father. He's gotten rich at our father's expense. Verse 2. When Jacob saw the look on Laban's face, he could tell his attitude toward him has changed. So Jacob's intuitive, he's starting to notice, and he's you see him growing in this. So Jacob's strategy with those lambs and the goats works out well, right? Maybe too well. Now he has this new problem. His he's he's killing it, like he's doing really great with his flocks. And his success is coming at the expense, it turns out, of Laban. Laban's sons are really upset that they've lost this wealth. And uh, Laban himself is upset. God tells Jacob to return to the promised land. And God promises that he will be with them. And this is an indication that Jacob enjoyed a special covenant relationship with Yahweh, with God. And that he is one of the patriarchs. And we know that. And that's another thing I want us to be mindful of as we're reading this sense of, I know what's happening, can really impair your ability to really get into the scripture understand it from their perspective and really see things through the lens. As we move into lesson 10, I'm going to ask you to really start seeing things through the lens of people like Well, Joseph in particular, who is going to come up because a lot of the assumptions that you have about people are based on your Bible studies you've had in the past, Sunday school lessons, sermons, and some of those perceptions are off a little bit because of just exegesis in the past. I want us to really kind of make sure we're getting a good, clean sweep through things. Verse three, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. I will be with you. And remember, Jacob had said, if you will be with me, then I will serve you. And God is saying, I will be with you. So he gets Rachel and Leah away from Laban in the field. And he explains that they need to return to their ancestral homeland, his homeland, which will be theirs. They are easy to persuade. He didn't have to go great lengths. They recognize the situation. Jacob points out that God is with them, even though Laban is against them. And he says, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that I worked for your father, verse 6, as hard as I could. But your father has humiliated me and changed my wages 10 times. But God has not permitted him to do me any harm. It isn't that great that he has that acknowledgement that Jacob is saying. Even to this point, God has not permitted him to do me any harm. If he said the speckled animals will be your wage, then the entire flock gave birth to speckled offspring. But if he said, the streak be your way to the entire flock, he for the streak. Honestly, it's kind of funny, the whole thing. So I find, I found this whole account so humorous because it's so Jacob, and it's really God, like as if the stripped-down plants are really doing any of this, and God makes that clear in a minute. Verse 9, in this way, God has snatched away your father's livestock and has given them to me. And then Jacob has his own hinemi moment. Remember that word hinemi? We, we learned a few lessons, a couple lessons back. Verse 10, once during breeding season, I saw in a dream that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, and spotted. In the dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, here I am, Hanemi, I replied. Then he said, observe all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have observed all that Laban has done to you. Listen, there is a very high likelihood in this room right now, that you are under some level of pressure, difficulty, because of the person you're working with or for in your life. And if if it's true about the character of God, then it's true about the character of God now. So what I'm, not, what I'm saying is not this exact scenario is yours to claim. I'm saying the character of God is yours to go back on. And this is a character of God that we want to move in on. I have observed all that Laban has done to you. Do you not think, do you not think that right now in your life, God has observed all that so-and-so has done to you? <laughs> That God could take up your cause at any moment. And the fact that he is or isn't is in God's timing. And are you okay with that? Right? I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the sacred stone and made a vow to me. And ladies, I would encourage you to do the same. Walk in that same path as Jacob so you'll have that kind of moment. And you can say, God, you are the God of Bethel to me. Where I anointed the stone. Where I prayed out. I gave my life. Right? Right? And so he says, again in verse 13, now leave this land immediately and return to your native land. In other words, as as a result of everything that's happened, go. Take note of this. He doesn't change Laban. Laban doesn't change. God moves Jacob. Laban doesn't change, right? Right? That's a tough one. Again, this isn't you claiming Jacob's story for your own. This is you going back to the character and nature of the truth of who God is and asking God, God, this is what you did for Jacob. Help me understand what you're doing for me. I know what your character is. You care. You look. You hear. You see. What are you asking me to do? The messenger of the Lord makes it clear to Jacob that the reason why his little tree bark watering trough strategy (laughs) Uh, producing a large flock was succeeding was due to God's intervention not some magic potion right it wasn't the shaved branches but it was God himself that assured that the flock produced but you notice that God does not get on Jacob's case for doing the whole tree thing just let him do it (laughs) again back to character of God you'll take care of the business he needs to take care of in your life You need to be corrected on your goofy shenanigans. God's going to take care and move in. And I guarantee you, if you continue in covenant relationship with the people that God has placed into your life, and I'm talking about this room right here, you are in relationship with all of us here. And God's going to use us to speak that into your life, right? And he's going to minister to you and go, oh, yeah, I need to knock that off. Either someone's going to flat out tell you that. Or you're gonna ha- you're gonna, the Spirit's going to move through words that somebody else says, and you're going to have that kind of moment. God doesn't shame him or discipline him at all for the tree thing. He just says, it was me, by the way. Little <laughs> tree thing, good, good job, but eh, it was me. Um, wasn't the shaved branches. God himself assured that the flock would produce Jacob's brand of sheep rather than Laban's. Man, if it was today, I'm telling you right now, they would have trademarked that and copyrighted his brand of sheep and put it in bottles and sold it to all of us. The angel of the Lord then identifies himself as none other than that God of Bethel, that he's the same God that appeared to him at Bethel on his journey up to Padanaram. and at Bethel, God had promised him that he would bring him back to this land. He also reminds Jacob that he had anointed that pillar, he made a vow that he would take care of him and his sojourn. My God and this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that I give, uh, you give me, I will give you a tent. Does Jacob make good on that promise? Well, we begin to see, after Jacob talks with his wives, uh, the God's working justice with Laban, uh, causing the flocks to grow. And Laban's are growing smaller in spite of their father's treachery. Their heavenly father, they, they, they don't even know very well yet. Their heavenly father is providing for them. So Jacob heads out with his family and the flocks that belong to him. And uh, he's heading back from Paddan Aram to his father's household again in Canaan. And two things motivate Laban then to pursue and head off and chase. Number one, his source of blessing is leaving, <laughs> right? Number Laban's a pagan. He's got no interest in the God of Jacob. He invokes him later, but there's no cart interest. It's all about Laban, what Laban can get. Number two, his household gods, Laban's household gods, the Teraphim, they're missing. That was a big deal for him right, so he he makes this big to do about it all three days later he discovers, and verse twenty three he takes his relatives with him, so this is not a small entourage. Laban just packs it all up and goes after him, and um, Laban ends up with his own but God moment, and we 've talked about those but God moments. Uh, Pastor Joe even brought that up in a sermon a few weeks ago twenty four but God came to Laban, the Aramean. Now make note of that if you haven't already in your notes because the Arameans are going to come up later and uh, we get them, we, we meet them as, um, we kind of have to deal with them a little bit later on. That's important and we'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. But make a note of it here because it says the Aramean right now. Remember, this is Moses talking to his people. So when he says the Aramean, they're like, oh, the Aramean. He was one of the, ooh, you know, they're like keying in on all that. In a dream at night and warned him, be careful that you neither bless nor curse Jacob. And the ESV says it, don't say anything good or bad. You watch it. That's my guy. <laughs> you know, when you stop and think about it, God could have just smited him and his whole army. He could have just wiped them all out then and there. But you see, God's allowing Jacob to engage with Laban. He's allowing this whole conflict to kind of come up. As we see Jacob continue to get tested, God doesn't just wipe out the enemy he lets him chase him, and he basically has him pump the brakes a bit, right? Be careful, right? Jacob, Laban overtakes Jacob. Jacob pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead. Laban and his relatives set up camp there too. What have you done? And Laban goes off on him and lets him have it. You didn't let me say goodbye to my grandkids. He's like trying to make him all tear jerky about the whole thing. and like, oh, really? He's just like, where's my gods? Where's my gods? That's what he's looking for, not my little kids, right? I have the power to do you harm. You know, me and my relatives and the grrr in the background. But the God of your father told me last night, be careful, don't bless or curse. So Laban brings this up, like saying, hey, I would take you out, but you know, you're (laughs) God. Now I understand that you have gone away because you long desperately for your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? Is his question. He asks, why? Why did he leave without telling him? Laban the deceiver takes exception at being deceived by... Jacob the deceiver as well this is really interesting and he accuses him of kidnapping his daughters which of course isn't true he couldn't say goodbye to his grandkids which is a little bit melodramatic and the stealing of the gods is really the you know kind of the issue there and and basically taking him a source of income so Jacob makes this interesting rash vow right here he has no idea that Rachel has taken the gods and, um, he take, Oh, who's ever done this? Um, they shall not live. He's going to put her to death and doesn't even know that it's her. And this really puts Rachel at, at serious risk. So for us, again, we're the omniscient reader. We know what's happening in a sense. We know, Oh dang, Rachel took the gods and we're just reading it for the first time. So, um, he confronts and, um, puts Rachel ends up at risk because Jacob says whoever's you know done this is going to die but what's the significance of those idols anyway like why did she even steal them what was up with that how is that important a couple principles to keep in mind on this number one the Bible doesn't tell us we don't know why so let's have some fun thinking about it but let's Like I've said, not build a church on top of the uh, answer we think we came up with. Uh, If you look in uh, five commentaries, you're going to come up with about 10 different opinions about this. Later on in this lesson that you're going to read in, in coming up 10, you're going to get a little bit of an answer. That'll be fun. Scripture does interpret scripture. And so actually, when I was writing out the questions for you to engage with, I almost had you go to that one, but I'm like, I'm going to wait to chapter 10. You guys can find it on your own before then, but it's there. Chapter 35, it'll come up. Number one principle to remember, a uh, ceiling's wrong. She stole. So that's wrong. She just shouldn't have done that. Number two, gods are useless. They're useless. Uh, number three, it's a sign of her hanging on to the past. That's useless also. Number four, it's petty, because if she's trying to get back at her father, that's petty. She's being petty. And number five, if she was righteous, well, she should have just left him alone. (laughs) She didn't want anything to do with the little gods. If she was doing it out of righteous motives, then she should have left him alone, or she should have destroyed them in some way. So we'll, we'll come back to that a bit at, at the end, but I just want to put that out there first. So Jacob's super confident that no one has stolen anything, but we all know better as the reader, Jacob, uh, Laban starts looking through the tents and the tension builds and he finally gets over to Rachel's tent, but Rachel's very clever and she sits on the saddle, the big camel saddle, and uh, the, the idols are underneath that. She says, I'm on my period, which is interesting because uh, that means that she is ritually unclean the saddle's ritually unclean, and now she's desecrated those little gods under there. So, okay, so even in pagan understanding, a woman menstruating is ritually unclean, and so even um, from a pagan perspective, her doing what she did just desecrated the whole thing. All right, so there's, a, there's another thought for you to hold on to. That's an actual, like, that's actually what happens right there. So Laban comes up, of course, empty-handed, and um, they get into this big discussion about um, you know, why would you do this? Why would you leave again? He brings it all back up. And then Jacob basically loses it and lets Laban have it. You've put me through all of this stuff. And um, he moves on in this whole, you know, the God of my, uh, God of Abraham. And he says this interesting phrasing here. He says, um, Jacob becomes angry, berated Laban. Jacob says to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin? You've hotly pursued me. For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found in all your household goods? Sit here before my kinsmen. And he says, verse 47, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. What's interesting about this is this is Jacob naming God. This is a very unique position. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. And Jacob names God and he names him fear of isaac it's a type of a naming of god it's something that we wouldn't we talk about fear god but he's saying the name of god itself is fear like fear of isaac so instead of god he substitutes the word fear it's that important to him so he says the fear of isaac had not been on my side surely he's not saying i feared isaac yes what verse is that um we're in verse 42 if the God of my I'm sorry if the God of my father the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side he's not saying he fears Isaac he's saying the God of Isaac and he substitutes the word fear there okay so God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night and so he they end up with this treaty and that's very important that comes up later on in the account again because uh, Laban's an Aramean and they end up with this treaty. They make an agreement. They sacrifice. Jacob sacrifices to God. Um, Laban names him after a, a pagan god. Jacob redirects and names it after um, something Hebrew and, and godly. And um, watchtower mitzvah means. And he says, "The Lord watch between you and me when we were out of each other's sight." Basically, he puts this tower and he says, "You don't go on this side of it. I don't go on that side of it. This is the end of the. This is the end of the line." Quite literally, in a sense, right there. So um, he heads out, and Laban heads his back, back up to home, and Jacob um, heads on his way as well. Verse Chapter 32, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. This is really significant, um, because the reality is, and when Jacob doesn't seem to understand, and I, honestly neither do we, is that the angels of God are always around us. Ephesians makes it very clear. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We live in a spiritual world and there's a spiritual dimension. And so God allows him to see the angels that are with him in the opening of chapter 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he has this epiphany this aha moment and he names that place Mahanayim two camps and there's layers of meaning the camp of the angels and my camp um, the camp that Laban heads off and my camp here but he makes this splitting moment right here of this Mahanayim um, this place where the angels have been revealed to him and in verse three it says and this is also another play on words, It says, Jacob sent messengers before him. The Hebrew word for messenger is the same word for angel. And so when Jacob went on his way and the angels, or the messengers of God, met him, Jacob initiates messengers and sends them. And this is Jacob's, again, sign of improving mindset and maturity because he's aware now of the angels around him. And something triggers an interest in him to... He's already taken care of his issues with Laban, but he's got something heavy hanging over him, and that's with Esau. And if he's going to continue on into his father's land, he's going to be with Isaac, um, who Esau and Isaac they loved each other, and um, he's going to have to deal with that. And he doesn't need to. There's nothing indicating that he's been commanded by God to, but he does and so initiated by this angel of god moment being there he sends off angels in a sense he sends off messengers to initiate this reunion and what this is is him risking when he didn't need to risk a reconciliation with Esau it's just hanging over him he needs to tighten up some things and um, wrap this all up so he does And he knows where his brother is. Esau is in Seir, the country of Edom. As you go into this next chapter, we're going to get an entire chapter all about, or next lesson, you're going to get an entire chapter all about Esau. And you're going to see Esau and Edom uh, switch back and forth. They're interchangeable. And he instructs his people. He sends off. He says, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, stayed with him now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob basically sends off his messengers to tell his brother, um, I have been blessed by God. Things are well with me. And it's like, are are things well with us? (laughs) How are we doing? And um, so he sends them off and it's quite a distance he gets them to go head on down there and they come back and I'm sure Jacob is waiting and eager to hear back and he uh, sees them coming and as they approach he says they say we went to your brother Esau he's like cool good we met him he's coming to meet you interesting and he has 400 men oh dang okay so that triggers his fear. He's really upset. He's fearful. 400 men isn't the same as what Jacob's message was. Animals. I got all this blessing. He's, he has an army. Remember, the last army we're familiar with is only 318 men. And it was Abraham who went out and took care of business. And now he's got Esau and he's got 400 men. And he immediately thinks it's an attack because he says that literally in verse 8. If Esau attacks one camp, he thought, then the other camp will be able because he splits his camp. Again, what's this place called? Mahanaim, two camps. And so he's got this angel camp and then him and then this camp of Laban behind him and then him and then the camp of Esau ahead of him and then him. And now he splits his own camp into two camps. And Jacob prayed, oh, God. Of my father Abraham, and he has his moment with God. God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you said, you said, return to your land, your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I'm not worthy of all the. There's our word chesed that we have been learning. I'm not worthy of all the faithful love, the chesed that you have shown. Verse 10, you have shown your servant with only my walking stick. There's that walking stick moment. I cross the Jordan. But now i have become two camps, Mahanayim. Rescue me, I pray, in the hand of my brother Esau. And here we go with Jacob again, going back to God. Say, if you do this, I'll do this. For I am afraid he will come and attack me as well as the mothers with their children. But you said, I will certainly make you prosper. This is a really weird way to prosper me if I'm gonna get killed uh, and make your descendants like the sand in the sea shirt. too numerous to count. Jacob stays there that night, he sends a gift to his brother Esau, and he basically sends him a petting zoo, like a huge (laughs) zoo, heads off. I mean, it's just obscene on the amount of overkill he does with this. Uh, Over 500 animals, he sends. He entrusts them to his servants, divided them into herds, told his servants, pass before me, keep some distance between the herds and all this. So it's this huge entourage. He's trying to make himself big like you would before a bear. You make yourself as big as you can. And that's basically um, what he's trying to do. Because he doesn't have 400 men. He doesn't have an army. He's got his wives and little kids and a petting zoo, basically. So he says to head on out, my brother meets you. To whom you belong? where are you going? Um, whose herds are you driving? Tell them they're from me, and that this is a this is a gift that he he's sending, and um, he also gave instructions to the second and the third servant. so he's got this whole little entourage staged out here, and he says in verse twenty you must also say in fact your servant Jacob is behind us. Jacob thought I will first appease him by sending a gift ahead of me and then I'll meet him, perhaps he'll accept me so the e s v is interesting wording here. Uh, the NET says so the gifts were sent on ahead of him while he spent the night at the camp listen to the ESV so the present passed on ahead of him it's just a great wording because of the nuance of in English how we hear present with a gift and also the present moment and past moving forward and also the past it's just a really I just thought it was a brilliant way to translate it Um, so the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night at the camp and you know, Ricky has some explaining, or Lucy has explaining to do, and Jacob got some thinking to do, so he is there in verse 22, and his camp is split, and he is, he's in this very tenuous moment, is God going to answer my prayer the way I want it to be answered, and give me the victory in my way, Um, because you have to remember in your mind, God promised Abraham he would have multiple generations, and Abraham got one kid out of the deal. One. God promised Isaac the exact same promise, and Isaac got two. Okay? God promised Jacob the same promise, and Jacob's got a bond. She's like, you know, okay, 11, it's not bad. It's not 400, and they're not all men, and they're little kids, a, lot, a couple of them, and one girl. We're going to get to her later as well. So he, this, is not, this isn't looking like this is a big, a fair match. So Jacob has some thinking to do in this moment. And I want to ask you this question right now before we move into this amazing passage. How many of you can go back to a moment of your life and know that was my big moment? That's when things shifted in my mind. That's when I made a made a difference, but how I thought about God, how I related to him. That's when things changed for me. Because Jacob's going to have that moment. And I, I would love for us to be able to think back through and think about that very moment that we have. Jacob certainly knew his, and he gets a lasting reminder of it as well. It says in verse 22, Jacob, the same night he arose and took his two wives, two female servants. And he crossed the ford of the Jabbok and he took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. So he's all alone. He didn't have anything with him, except maybe his staff. Not many kids with them. The petting zoo's gone. Everything's gone. And he was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him. Now I want you to picture this. He's at the ford of Jabbok and a ford is a low place where the water comes through. He sends his people over there. He's over here on this side. And so this is not dry land. This is muddy. He's mud wrestling. He's not just wrestling. And if you look at it carefully, the scripture actually says a man wrestled with him. A man wrestled with him. Not Jacob wrestled with a man. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So that gives us the entire summary of everything that's happened, and then we move into these details as we move forward. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So the wrestling match doesn't end when he gets his hip yanked out of joint or touched out of joint, really. If you ever watch a wrestling match, have you ever seen a wrestling match? Maybe your kids or friends have been in, in wrestling. Your hips are, well, pivotal. Sorry, they are. They're pivotal. This is the important part: your arms, your neck, everything that moves. But this is where everything is changing. The direction changes based on how you can flip your leg up and over and twist your body this way, and then get the person to go the other direction. And so, this man that we know of at, at this moment here is wrestling with him and he touches his hip socket and he continues to wrestle with a hip out of joint, barely able to fling his leg then around him. And then he said, let me go. And we break into Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I will not let you go. <laughs> but Jacob said, I will not let you go. <laughs> Unless you, what? Bless, Bless me. Me. Bless me. Now Listen. What's on Jacob's mind right now? This, this meeting coming up with Esau. Unless you give me success with Esau. Unless you protect my family. Unless you do any number of things. But he just says, unless you bless me, that is the most all-encompassing thing that you can come to God with and all the things that you would like to ask God. Well, we'll, go, we'll do that in the Q&R time. Yeah. yeah that's my question too. So, verse 27. And he said to him, What's your name? Because Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now remember a question that gets asked but not answered way back with Abraham. When Abraham wants to know how this whole thing is going to work out, and God moves in on him and doesn't answer his question at all, he says, give me a cow. Remember that? It's when he splits the cows open and he walks through them and does this whole thing. does not answer the question at all, right? So this man does the same thing. He says, I'm not going to let you go. and let you bless me. And so you would expect him to say, all right, all right, all right. You know, uncle, I'll bless you. He doesn't. He says, what's your name? Why? I have to understand, remember, God doesn't ask a question because he needs to know the answer. God asks a question because he needs you to think about where you are and what your answer is. He wants you to revisit who you are. And he's having Jacob do that because a name isn't just a name. A name is everything that's wrapped up in his identity, isn't it? Right? Because from the time he was born, Jacob was the heel grasper. You know? And he's just the guy who grabbed the brother's heel on the way out. And his life has kind of moved in that direction, kind of grasping at things. And now when he's really, literally, actually grasping The heels, likely, of this man, he has this opportunity to think back through, in a very visceral moment, who he is. I'm a heel grasper, he says. Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. I mean, think about it his moment right there because we know the end of the story we know who he's wrestling with and Jacob doesn't know right now your name will no longer be called heel grasper but Israel Israel which means which is what it means right here for you have striven and there's your answer with God there's Jacob's big moment wait what and do you think in that heated, sweaty, muddy mess? Because literally, the word wrestle back in verse 24 is the Hebrew word abak, and it means get dirty. He's getting down and getting dirty with God. He's mud wrestling with a man that he's going to find out in a minute. He says, you have striven with God, and Jacob certainly, you know how things flash through your mind in such a moment, you're like, well, I know I have. And he's thinking about other, all these other things in his life, and he's kind of... Uh, allegorizing it probably in his head a bit but he's literally actually now wrestling with god right now not in an allegory not in a, a little story version of that but really in truth he is you have striven with god and with men he thinks he's striving with men right now and he's not he's actually striving with god right now and have prevailed what where is jacob prevailed Where's Jacob prevailed? Everything that he's gotten right now is because of what God's given him. If he prevailed with Laban, it's because God gave him that. His little tree thing didn't make any sense at all. And and otherwise God would have said, You remember that tree thing you did? That was super cool. You prevailed. You got all the flocks to get fat and happy, right? No. He is saying, You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In other words, everything you've done that has been a prevailing moment, I've provided for you. Because he knows that he's already had that conversation with God before. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. Why? Because Abraham got the name of God, Isaac got the name of God, right? Jacob names him Fear of Isaac. But that was his like working it through moment. And he says, Not an answer again. Why is it that you ask? My name. In other words, you know my name. You know. I'm the one who you think this is, right? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, and if there's any doubt in anyone's mind who he was wrestling with, Jacob doesn't have any doubt. For I have seen the face of God. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now listen, this is the first time in the Bible that we ever get any hint that anyone thought that facing God would it cause death immediately. We know it in our head because you've all read the story of Moses when Moses had to be shielded from the glory of God. So you have that already. And, oh, yeah, of course, anyone who sees the face of God is going to die. This is the first time it ever gets mentioned right here. And Jacob seems to have that understanding about who God is and that he would actually survive it, and that would be a pretty amazing thing if he did. And so right at that moment, the sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping as if we needed to know because of his hip. We don't need to know that. That's self-evident. He's limping because of his hip. But here's why we're given that information. God doesn't heal him. He didn't temporarily dislocate his hip to make a point in the moment. It's out. And for the rest of his life, so much so that the Israelites from that day forward don't even eat the sinew of that hip in memoriam of this moment, Jacob too carries that limp with him. And I want you to go back to the opening question I asked you to have hovering over you. Are you willing to go through what it's going to take to get what you're thinking you need to get from God? And are you willing to do it in God's way and God's timing? Because Jacob is disfigured wounded for the rest of his life. And he doesn't just carry a a staff with him now because that's what the guys did back in those days. He needs that staff because he has a permanent limp. And he's going to end up leading his family and leading his people and leading the nation of soon-to-be Israel with a limp for the rest of his life. And every time someone sees him walking up, he's not just an old guy that's limping. There's something distinct because old men limp but this guy has a really distinct limp, the way he's walking. And that's going to cause story. That's going to cause question. That's going to cause his grandkids and his great-grandkids, his wives who see him the next time, and his sons. Like, what happened to you? And Now he's just mud-caked, and he's got this limp. He's going to be able to use this to retell this story. And he does, because Moses ends up recording it. So he ends up meeting Esau. Jacob lifted up his eyes. He's right there in this moment. Maybe even caked with mud. There's no showers. Right? He, he might have flopped himself over into the jaybok and rinsed off a bit, but this is a man as a mess. And watch what happens as he approaches. He Behold, Esau's coming, and 400 men, the scripture says. He says um, he divides the children, Leah, Rachel, two female servants, he puts the servants and the children in the front, and And they're, you know, how how things are when you're traveling with kids. Why do we have to do this? And when do we have to go? And Why are we dividing up like this? And he's like, I have got a limp at this point. Just do what I said, right? And he splits everybody up and still worried about the whole scenario. But Jacob himself went on ahead of them. What was the original plan? They They were ahead. And he was going to trail in the back. But what happens now? He's up front, Right. Jacob himself went on ahead, and he bowed toward the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Now, if you are watching Esau come at you, and you've got, Esau's got 400 men behind him, I'm telling you, you would feel that. Because this isn't just 400 guys walking. This is their, their entourage, too. They're beasts of burden that they're carrying with them. That ground would rumble. Besides, these are big, burly men. Esau's not going to be gathering a bunch of wimpy guys with him. He's got 400 men, and Esau himself is quite a guy. So he's got his 400 also quite a guys with him. So Jacob himself goes on ahead of them. Mindset and maturity, we see the change taking place. And he bowed, which would have been the right thing to do once, to show humility, servitude, openness, openness custom of bowing like that one time would have been good but now he's got a hip out of socket he's got this really crazy limp thing going on with him and so the fact that he doesn't just bow once because that would have been painful he's still muddy he's still limping and sore and raw and he probably hasn't learned how to compensate yet for that like we all do when we have a limp he bows another time and that's got to be painful Ooh, he's going to feel it going all the way down and all the way back up. Number two, and he keeps on walking. Cain, or staff, three, limp, limp. cane, staff, four, five, six, seven times. Seven times, remember, perfection. <clears throat> Jacob approaches Esau with this limp and this pain in his hip, right? But Esau ran to him. No at all. Embraces him, hugs his neck, kisses him. They both weep. What's interesting, this is just a side note. You can go look it up later. I'm not going to dig in too much on this. But in the Hebrew, when you read and kissed him, when you read that portion right there, there are um, seven what's called like diacritical marks that appear over the Hebrew lettering there that aren't there. There's no way to make sense of that in the English. It wouldn't translate. So all your Bibles probably say something along the lines of just and kissed him. But if you read it in the Hebrew, it has seven diacritical marks, dot, 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 over. Well, that's not how Hebrew is written at all. They don't put marks over things like that. And um, and what that indicates is some kind of emotion that's trying to be conveyed, kind of like if when Shakespeare was writing his words, he would, he would add like the words the actors actually said or did, and then the emotion somehow maybe in parentheses around them. And so many uh, Hebrew sages actually in this point right here think that this wasn't just a friendly kiss, but it was a tension and he bit him. Because the actual Hebrew word can be translated bit. So again, we're not going to go too much further into that, but feel free to go Google it and look it up. But it's very interesting. At the very least, just open up Bible Hub, find that verse, look at it in the Hebrew and imagine my amazing screen that you can't see right now. <laughs> this is all up there and all illustrated for you in little circles and moments. Oh, good times. God is so good. And Esau looked up, saw all the children. He says, what's happening? And and Jacob explains that God's been gracious and... and um, how God's blessed him and he go to this whole parlay back and forth and Esau's like come you know be, come back with me and Jacob's like no I don't think I'll good. I'll be slower than you you go on ahead and ta- and then he also has to convince him to take all this petting zoo with him and this is actually a really important point because if Jacob in terms of Jacob in terms of the custom doesn't get Esau to take all these gifts as if they did never reconciled so in the eastern custom he has to get him to take so they go to this you know, moment of, no, no, it's okay, I don't need all that, and, oh, no, you really do, and they finally agree, and Esau does take that. So Esau says, you need to come back home with me, follow back, you know, down to Seir, to my homeland, and Jacob's like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm just gonna go a lot slower, you know, because of this limp, and he gets to kind of play it for the very first time for a little bit of pity, you know how we all do, we had that limp, they're like, oh, I don't know if I can help you with your uh, moving, uh, I don't have a big car, plus I got this limp, he hired some youth group and paid him a pizza, so he's like, I can't do that, I'll, I'll catch up with you later holy lies. He doesn't catch up with them at all. And it's just this weird like Jacob moment. (laughs) Like so close. Like at least don't say you're going to go. Just say, nope, God told me to get over to Israel. Or not Israel yet, but God told me to get over to Canaan. And he doesn't. So we see Jacob being Jacob basically at the end. And then he has this really interesting moment at the end of chapter 33. He says, "Um, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Um, Of course, he ditches um, Esau, and he uh, this word safely translated in most of your translations is actually the word shalom, and it means peace. And so Jacob came in peace to the city of uh, Shechem, and uh, he gets there. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he ends up buying um, this land for a hundred pieces of, of money that he has. And some scholars believe that this is actually Jerusalem that he purchased like this is the future site of where Jerusalem is going to be there's debate about this it's not actually in it's too far north to really really be in there so there's a lot of debate about it but that's another one for you to go on a rabbit trail and enjoy but here's what's interesting what he says he says there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel God the God of me this is my new name this is the first time we have God's name invoked after he's named himself he gets the name of israel so we have it el elohi israel so no longer the god of abraham the god of isaac you know my you know the fear of isaac and all that this is my god elohi Mm -hmm. and uh, so he names him um that right there all right so then we get into this very challenging difficult passage this chapter um 34 and um Couple of things I want to talk to you about with this. Number one, God had told Jacob. God had told Jacob to head back into Canaan, and although he is in Shechem right here, and, and Abraham does um, set up an altar, this is a family site. This is where people have gone there before. I don't believe that Jacob is really moving forward like he should have been. So he's not where he should ultimately be. He kind of parks it there. And so while we see this victory with Jacob, we don't see him really moving forward in where he should be, number one. Um, and second observation that I want you to think about is throughout the rest of Genesis, um, you're going to see Jacob being referred to as Jacob most of the time. Abraham, when he gets a name change, it's always Abraham. He never, he never flips back to Abram. Uh, Sarai, never get Sarah, she never flips back to Sarai. Jacob gets named Israel, and then you keep on reading, and you're like, wait, he doesn't get to stay on Israel? <laughs> he goes back to Jacob. The vast majority of times when he is being referred to as Jacob, he's in sin. He's not walking with God in those moments. So just be, make note of that as you go through. And see how the interesting, uh, there's a variety of reasons for this. Number one is that Jacob's not just getting a name change because it's about him, it's a nation. And God's working on building a nation here. And so he's going to move in on that. But you'll even see this later on in the prophecy that oftentimes when God is disciplining the nation of Israel, he refers to them as Jacob, even though it's been hundreds of years now and they've been the nation of Israel for all that time. All right. So I believe there's a little danger here going on with this detour that he takes to sit there in Shechem. And, of course, there's no shalom, as I mentioned in the Bible study. Uh, in Shechem and, um, a couple things also want us to say, and I'll, I'll say this with a little bit of hesitation only because of, if you remember we're in 21st century America, we're women, we've lived through the me too moment, uh, me too movement, hashtag and all that. Um, we have a strong sensitivity of right and wrong and how women should not ever be blamed for any bad deeds that men do in violence against women. And so what I'm going to say next is, is going to just really be hard because it's like, oh, well, it doesn't sound right at all. So please understand, we are coming at it from a very strong mindset of women. We don't ever do any victim shaming. You never blame a woman for what she was wearing or where she was if, she, if something violent happens to a woman. That being said, this isn't written in 21st century America. And, and so here's what God's word says. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. There's a couple issues here. She's really comfortable, apparently, in this land, but she's hanging out with pagans. She's not hanging out with the people probably that she should have been hanging out. And again, this is going to ring out like victim blaming. It's not. This is reading the text. And so we have to keep in mind, it's wrong what Shechem does. That, nothing is going to change that. And, um, it's not, it's just no way to gloss over that. It's, it's absolutely horrific what they do. It's horrific what Simeon and Levi do as well in just a minute. We'll talk about that, but Dinah should not have been there. She shouldn't have been there. Uh, there's a sense of like kind of curiosity and looking, maybe kind of hanging out with people she shouldn't have been with in this wording here. So there's that. All right. So all I'll say on this passage here and then we'll close is, um, what happens here is wrong on every single level. God's name is never mentioned one time in his entire passage. God is completely silent. No one invokes the name of God to enact any of this justice. We don't see anything referencing God at all, not one single time. Dinah's not doing something good there, telling everybody about her God. All right? Simeon and Levi do not invoke the name of God to exact vengeance. They, um, they take God's covenant and they use it for their own gain to try to ruin these people. And they do ruin them. And so um, I, I honestly feel like that's just our simple lesson on this. This is um, it's an interesting passage because if you look back through when Lot get, the Lot's daughters get him drunk, at least we have something out of that story. Um, they get him drunk and we end up with the Moabites. And out of the Moabites we get Ruth. So we see that and God points that out to us so we can see that. We're gonna get another story that's pretty crazy coming up in this next lesson, and there's another trail that comes out of that story. But in this story, try as I might, there is nothing ever done in the rest of scripture that says anything that happens out of the story was some great, wonderful, oh, but wait, down the further in line, because nothing in here invoked at all God in, in terms of his plan. And so they close, uh, this chapter closes with a rhetorical question, a question that does not need to have an answer because the answer is implied. They said, Simeon and Levi said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? No. He should not have treated their sister like a prostitute. So they ask a question that doesn't need to be answered, and that's the end of the conversation doesn't justify what they did. They were wrong in what they did. And they are so wrong in what they did. At the end of Genesis, we're going to find out exactly what happens to Simeon and Levi as a result. So God does judge them for this behavior. And again, that was one of those scripture, interpret scriptures. Should I go ahead and have you look at it? But I'm I'm going to wait. You Feel free to look at it if you want to. But it's there. I'm just not going to prompt you to go there. Um, So we we take a look at these difficult passages and we recall, like I said at the opening of your... Um, my heart to yours. That there's no, there's no filtering. There's no like, let's make everything look nice so we, the good Christian people, come out looking great in the end. They just don't. They're horrible, hideous, awful people, and they're God's chosen people, and they're just not acting very chosen. And that should offer us two things. Number one, it should give us hope because I'm a train wreck as well. Mm. I've done hideous, horrible, unjust, unrighteous things, and I have claimed righteousness for doing it. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Mm. Well, no, but you shouldn't have slaughtered them for it. So don't justify your horrible behavior for that. So I'm that person too. And that sometimes God's just flat out silent. There's nothing. God does no, there's no recompense for this at all in this moment. It doesn't happen until quite later. And the people who get really busted for it aren't the Shechem people. <laughs> God's people. Those are the ones who bear the brunt of this. And God does bring the consequence upon them and their all their generations as a result of the sin. That happens in Genesis 49. So we'll have to wait uh, to get there. So I hope that going through um, a life story and passages like this just rings bells like crazy in your own mind and your own life and what God's allowing you uh, to deal with and that you can be thankful that he's recorded his word, even the really hard parts, the parts that you just can hardly wrap your mind around and that you could be grateful and thankful for all that. And I hope you are, right? Amen. All right, let's thank God for our time. Thank you, God, once again, for just your great love for us, recording your word, helping us to learn and understand it, giving us insight. And I pray, God, that as you move in these women's lives, Lord, that they would continue to hunger and thirst after you, your word, your righteousness, and they would not just do their study, but they would dwell and let the word of Christ dwell in them richly as well. Bless them as we head on out now in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Hallelujah amen, Hallelujah. amen.